Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. Welcome to HFL 83 with Michael Sachs, Principal Trumpet of the Cleveland Orchestra. Well, know Michael is a fantastic trumpet player slash musician, and he's also really avid about his teaching. You're going to hear quite a bit about both in this interview with Michael. There's also a bonus episode available for my Patreon patrons, and you can only get that by becoming a Patreon patron. Find out more at patreon.com slash studio HFL. And for those that are already supporting me through Patreon, thank you very much for your support. I really appreciate that. And to Pickett Blackburn, Messina Covers, Eastman Music Company, S.E. Shires, thank you for your continued support as well. If you enjoy the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would go to Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a star rating and a comment. So before we get to today's interview, here's a little bit from Aaron Rom. Take it away, Aaron. Continued interviews from Studio HFL are made possible through the support of Messina Covers, Eastman Music Company, Pickett Blackburn, S.E. Shires, and through the generosity of Patreon subscribers. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other brass instrumentalists. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to crazy color schemes. Let's not forget about options for mouthpiece pouches, or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company and S.E. Shires. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments, from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And you know they're invested in creating a quality product when the legendary Doc Severinsen helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at EastmanWinds.com, and you can learn more about the S.E. Shires line of instruments at SEShires.com. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance to try any mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at pickettblackburn.com. And on the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn, it would be worth your while to check out their incredible line of trumpets endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Be sure to check them out at pickettblackburn.com, and that's Pickett with two T's. And before today's interview, just a reminder that you too can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash studiohfl. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash studiohfl. There are four tiers of support, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on to today's interview with your host, Larry Powell. Welcome to my podcast, Studio HFL. I'm glad to have you here. Hey, thank you very much, man. It's great to be here. Yeah. You're a big deal. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, I, I do. I, I look... I've seen your career, the various things you've done, and festivals and things like that you've organized, and... Yeah, it's really impressive, and, and it's. I think you've done an awful lot of really great things for the trumpet community and the music community. Oh, thank you. I've, I I try to do a wide variety of things, include a lot of people, and try to have a good time in the process, and I've been very fortunate the way things have worked out. Yeah. 
So I talked to David Bilger yesterday, mm-hmm. and, and I, of course I told him I was going to talk to you this afternoon, but he lamented not being able to do a steamboat, a steamboat this it's summer. The Strings Music Festival in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been music director up there. This was going to be my sixth summer, or mm-hmm. supposed to be right now. And yeah, usually at the beginning of the summer, toward around July 4th, we've done either in, in a brass percussion ensemble kind of setting we've done either like a called celebrate america like a fourth of july kind of thing where we've got tim higgins who's the principal trombone out in san francisco is a wonderful arranger and he did an arrangement of 1812 he's done a bunch of john williams stuff and you know so we've done do some patriotic stuff some civil war stuff some of tim's arrangements mm-hmm. and dave has been a big part of that we've also done an all john williams show as well oh cool we did just an entire show of just tim's arrangements and john's stuff and uh does he simplify things? No, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a mouthful. It's, I mean, we're playing crazy stuff, violin parts and all, all sorts of things. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And Dave's always been a really huge part of that. And for me to get to collaborate with Dave, I don't know if Dave mentioned this, that we were in New York together at Juilliard. Yeah, he did. We played in a quintet together for the better part of mm-hmm. a couple of years. And in a lot of ways, I owe a lot of my success to Dave in the sense that mm. playing together with him was hugely inspiring and challenging. And in many ways, we fed off each other, we yin and yang a little bit to each other, that there's certain things he could do better than I think I could. And I think there are a couple things that I could do that weren't quite his strong suits. And we really complemented each other that way. And mm-hmm. I think we it, it pushed us both to re, you know raise the bar for each other. And, and in many ways... Playing with Dave was was inspiring and, and pushed me to be better and challenged me and hear him do stuff that, you know, I just sit there, wow, how the heck does he do that? And then I'd be like, all right, I got to go figure out how he does that. Or I'd yeah. ask for, you know, something. You know, in a very formative time like that was really important. We also spent a summer together before that out at uh, Colorado Phil, which is now National Repertory Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the... One of the things I saw you guys do, and I don't know, it's not been too awful long ago, but it was Song of Hope. Yeah. Uh, with Ryan playing. And right, right. That was, I think, the first really big public, public as far as YouTube, accessible on YouTube performance of that. And then, of course, that tune just exploded. Everybody was doing it. And it's still bittersweet here, what, two weeks since Ryan's passing? Not to bring things down. It's, I think no. it certainly has affected the trumpet world. It's, <clears throat> whenever I think of Ryan... It's, there's a duality there right now because, of course, it's devastating that he's no longer with us. And for me, it was, he was like my little brother. I knew Ryan since he was, I knew of him since he was about 15, 16, and then I first met him when he was 19. Mm-hmm. And we were very close over the years. And, of course, being involved in the Cancer Blows events, like what you mentioned, the, the Song of Hope with, with, with Dave and Ryan and, and the group that Phil Smith conducted uh, back mm-hmm. in 2015 was really a, a huge highlight for my career to be part mm-hmm. of that and something was musically so much content, but more importantly, so much meaning and a greater purpose. Yeah. And I guess when I think of Ryan, it's, of course, it's been very hard for me to process for the last couple of weeks. But when I think of him, though, I think of just this buoyant, just hugely just this ball of energy of positivity mm-hmm. that it was like this bright light that shone on everybody who was around him and affected everybody in in such a positive way yeah just in dealing with his multiple myeloma his cancer that just the way he instead of having a pity party he flipped it around and decided in the most selfless manner imaginable 
what can I do for others? What can mm-hmm. I do to help others who are afflicted with this? What can I do mm-hmm. to help raise awareness and, and find a cure? And what an extraordinary human being to be able to, at that moment in your life, look to, 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 to be that selfless and serve others. It's just, it's a testament to him mm-hmm. and the kind of personality he was and type of type of spirit he was and soul he was, which was just unbelievably positive and uplifting to everyone and, and fun to be around. Even when he was the most down, the last few times I talked with him, he was in bad shape. And yeah. he still was kind of trying to joke around and look, you know, looking for, for humor. And that's, yeah. so there's the thing that's really sad, but at the same time, his presence is so strong. In, yeah. His, his, his presence and soul is so strong in the present that yeah. I feel like that's, I can't help but smile when I think of him and his goofy ass laugh and just a big grin on his face and just yeah. on him, man. And it's just, it, I, I can't help but smile when I think of him. Yeah. It's hard to, 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 to you know, process all of it, but at the same time, I can't help but smile thinking about him and yeah. the effect he's had on all of us. Yeah. What a great personality. What a great person. And, uh, yeah. you know, a fabulous it, musician too. Jesus. Oh, and, e- and even in uh, the shape that he was in, still doing perf- little performances here and there and, and bits of recording still sounded unbelievably good. It was, it was true. He was Superman. It was yeah. superhuman to yeah. still walk out there and perform the way he did. The, I've talked to quite a few people, and of course I won't give it away who, but quite a few people I've interviewed who are cancer survivors. And some are very private about mm-hmm. how they deal with it. Some are a little more open. I'm a cancer survivor. I, you know, lost a kidney in 2016 and it's, but, and I talked to Ryan, I I saw him at the the 2018 ITG Mm -hmm. and I talked to him and introduced myself and and told him I was a survivor and he became so interested in me for that moment. And I didn't suffer chemo or radiation the way he and many others have, but selfless he truly he was selfless and i think i guess what i'm bringing up here is i hope people who are uncomfortable talking about it know that there are great spokespeople for cancer and all of that out there will be people like him who will speak for those who are who don't want to but absolutely yeah. i'm sure we know some of the same folks that mm-hmm. have been probably yeah. and I, but that's so ryan that in that moment he was about you and your story and wanting to lend support and wanting to show love and, and an uplift. And, you know, I see it. I've been very fortunate at this point not to have dealt with something like that, mm-hmm. thankfully, but I know many who have, and I, I, I am sure no, we'll know many who will, but I know there's a number of us that it's very important that we carry the torch forward that Ryan mm-hmm. created and that we not stop pushing and, and, and doing and giving mm-hmm. and looking to uplift others this way. And yeah. there's, there's many of us already talking, albeit quietly right now, of course, we want to be very sensitive to sure. soon, but eventually I'm sure there are going to be some very large scale events that are going to be carried on in, in Ryan's name for a very long time and, and, and yeah. continue to do some really good things and hopefully help some of the folks that we both know who've mm-hmm. been through things or those that are, are going to be. And, and also, to me, it's a testament to the trumpet community. I mean, in many ways, this is a, a brotherhood and a sisterhood where there's 
but trumpet players seem like few other instruments, if any, to have that kind of camaraderie, that kind of gathering point. And in many ways, Ryan became that point person for it. With the Cancer Blows events that he did, he became a bit of a rallying point. Even though that was already in the air, he galvanized it, bringing all these people from across different genres, anywhere from Arturo Sandoval and Lee Lochnane and Doc to to Jens and Jose C. Baja to me and Phil Smith and Dave and you know, Tom Rolfs, Chris Martin, and all sorts of other people. It's, mm-hmm. you know, to bring all this, this spectrum across and to have everybody gathered as one like that, I feel like that's something that's carried forward in many ways is one of the legacies that I feel like Ryan's had that yeah. I think a lot of us enjoy and want to see even more. And, and I feel like there's that in the trumpet community that is unique in instrument communities. That's, that's one of the nice things. Yeah. That uh, that provides a nice segue. Not that uh, we couldn't continue to talk oh, that's about okay. Ryan. I mean, I can talk about uh, Ryan for the next yeah. Hours, but I, you know. uh, yeah. On behalf of Eastman Music Company, I've attended a couple of different uh, music events. I went to a horn conference, mm-hmm. and I've been to a number of ITGs. And I can tell you, horn players are a strange breed. It is a totally different vibe at a horn conference. They're a little more their own own thing, but there's also, there's a nice camaraderie there too, but it's a different vibe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to going to a a woodwind conference at some point and just seeing how awkward all that is. What's going on these days? How are you managing to get through pandemic and such? The best way for me to describe it is that I always have in my mind what I call my project deck. When, you know, things are normal and I'm playing in the orchestra and teaching at CIM in Northwestern and doing the stuff I'm doing, I have my project deck on the side of all these things that, time permitting, all things in a perfect world, I'd love to be doing. I'd love to tackle. And kind of feeling like I've been handed, you know, all of us have been handed basically what amounts to a sabbatical of nine months, you know, six to nine months. Unpaid, yes. More like like nine months, most likely. I just feel like this is a time for me to... I've got, you're the fork in the road. Do I hug the couch or do I try to tackle some stuff? And I've tried to go this way a little more than that way. But but no, I just feel like with not having the usual daily routine, I just I wanted to dive into some other projects. And I, that's always been the way I've been. I've always worked in a very, not, I, I, how can I put this? I, I'm not like ADD or anything, but it's just when I work on something, I go like, I dive in, right. really do a deep drill. I can't just do a surface thing and then put it aside. Mm-hmm. But that happens with some things. I'll like start it and then like some book projects. Mm-hmm. And I'll start it and then I'll put it aside and let it brew a little bit then I'll come back to it. And then when it's right, I'll do it just, I hit it and it's like a sumo match. I'm like <laughs> dancing around and throwing up salt and slapping and doing all sorts of stuff. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom and it's done. Yeah, And that's happened with a, a couple of book projects. I ended up, I've worked a lot with Rob Roy McGregor with Ball mm-hmm. Quitter Music over the years. And Rob is a dear friend. And you know, First I met him when he was playing in the LA Phil and, you know, section there. And then, of course, with his publications. And he was very supportive with my orchestral book that I put out, The Orchestral Trumpet. And the CD Great book. Oh, thanks. And so... Anyhow, I've been thinking, I self-published it, and Rob and I have been talking about maybe he does a lot of things with Carl Fisher and Presser that maybe Presser would be interested in taking Mm -hmm. it over. And then he had some conversations with Presser, and they happened to mention, anyhow, 
one thing led to another, and he ended up connecting me with the presser guys who were interested in taking over my orchestral book. Very cool. So Rob and I realized, though, very cool, but Rob and I couldn't find the finale files that had been up, updated with all the, we, we were in the fourth printing, and with each printing, especially for the second printing, there were a huge slew of changes we made. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we couldn't find the original finale files, so we had to go back to the first generation and put in all the changes back. Oh, <laughs> so that was about the first month of being mm-hmm. out in COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me and Rob have a little word of prayer a few hours, every day. <laughs> and then once we got done with that, I also had a practice sequence book about an 80, 80 page it turned out about an eighty page practice sequence book that I'd been wanting to do as a supplement to the orchestral book, basically going through all my practice sequences for pretty much about the 50 top excerpts. And I'd sketched that out. But once I got done with the orchestral book finale stuff upgrade, I dove in and for the next month basically completed the other book, basically Mm -hmm. completed the the practice sequence book, which I also delivered both to Presser on June 1st. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that's going to be out whether it's the fall or early next year, I'm, I'm not sure. It depends. Yeah. With everything going on and everything so fluid with COVID, I, it's anyone's guess, but hopefully sooner than later. And then, oh gosh, some other projects. Well, um, can I ask real quick, when you, you talk about your practice sequences, and if, I've got the Rob Roy uh, McGregor books as well, oh, yeah, all, all four volumes. And in fact, I split them all and bound them all together in a big spiral bind. Oh, binding. nice. Yeah, just because it's, you're always going to use them. So... I mean, his approach, his examples, his practice, is that kind of what you're after, that practice sequence, that ideas on how to break down the different it, techniques involved? It's, it, it's similar, but a little different. Rob's is a little more of an overview. Mine is getting a little more into the weeds. So I'm getting a little bit more into some detail orientation with some things. But a lot of it reflects my time with, with, with James Stamp. Mm-hmm. I studied, well, my main teachers were Tony Plough, James Stamp, and Mark Gould. Yeah, a and, who's who of trumpet players, right? You know, which is, you know, I've been very lucky that way. But yeah. and in many ways, they, there's a continuum. There was definitely a lot of overlap and, and synergy between those three teachers and their philosophies were, were mm-hmm. very akin to each other. And one was an outgrowth of the other. But my time with Mr. Stamp was really kind of my genesis moment in, in, in trumpet playing, where a lot of stuff kind of synthesized for me. You know, so there's before I was with him and everything since. And... A lot of these practice sequences are very stamp-oriented as far as setting up the air, adding a layer of articulation, you're getting things feeling on a linear plane, blowing more the shape of the phrase, feeling like your efficiency ratio, you know, increasing your efficiency ratio to make sure that you can really express yourself musically. You and know. is that what happened? Is that when you got to Jimmy Stamp? Is that what happened? To- That's a lot of my time with Mr. Stamp. Uh, Mr. Stamp, first and foremost, Really, his exercises, when you really drill down all the way to the bottom of it, to me at the root are about correct air usage, correct air movement, really making sure that everything with your air is working properly and efficiently in a very balanced equilibrium sort of a manner, and that the trumpet really just feels like an extension of your voice. Mm -hmm. So there's that ease and that flow to everything that you do that you're always trying to work less and get more out of what right. you're doing. That efficiency ratio is always trying to, to go that way. And in many ways with this practice sequence book, a lot of that stuff comes from that philosophy and at the root of it and really trying to figure out 
how to make things so that you understand the intervallic relationships. You understand where the airflow needs to be. You understand what you have to do physically in order to get the musical style and the musical aspects to speak and, and happen properly. Mm-hmm. How long did you study with him? Uh, only about a year and a half. But quite an impression, obviously. Oh, on, well, on... I was already doing some stamp stuff with, with, with Tony. Oh, okay. So in many ways, just doing it, going to the source, mm-hmm. only just galvanized it and just really solidified all of that. But mm-hmm. it just resonated with me. And I've always been a fundamentals guy. I've always, I, I talk a lot about the basketball coach, John Wood. Oh, yeah. From UCLA. Yeah. You know, it's all about practicing and proper ingraining and reinforcing of the most basic elements and fundamentals leads to a proper, you know, performance or in his case, a playing in the game and you know i've always been a big fan of that in many ways coach wooden and mr stamp are very Mm -hmm. there's a huge amount of overlap Mm -hmm. that stamp was starting out with buzzing on the lips buzzing on the mouthpiece getting it in the horn getting everything even that is a schlossberg and taking Mm -hmm. schlossberg and basically training your air not to go by going up, you have to mm-hmm. increase the airspeed, and you stay up as you go down so that it, you don't leave a note before it's actually finished and you complete every single mm-hmm. note. So it's, it's, it's all those axioms, those real fundamental axioms played out in a musical context mm-hmm. and showing how it's not fundamentals over here, musical expression here, they're, they're this. You oh, yeah. Without the other, and that kind of, in, in many ways, is showing the building blocks of how you go about yeah. And how, with an end goal of expressing myself a particular way, this is the sequence that I do in order to align things and get things you know, right. properly in place to be able to execute. So it's um, a, a continuum of leading toward that end goal. Ronnie Rahm uh, was a stamp. Mm-hmm. I guess once a stamp student, always a stamp student. But uh, I had him at a trumpet conference come in and explain the stamp method because the book is just like a, a loose template, I guess, is is way to describe it. Those were not, if you get the book, you don't really get the full context. So Ronnie was great enough to come and do this session and take people through that and explain a lot of things. And very uh, eye-opening, mind-blowing to think, oh, that's why you do that. That's why he designed it to do this, that, and the other. And and it's nice to have people like you and Ronnie who studied with him who can really clarify all of those things. Stamp was always, it was, it was very deliberate and very reasoned and rational. Every Everything had purpose. There was always meaning and purpose in every exercise and why you need to do it and what the end goal needs to be as far as what, what it creates, what it produces, how you feel, etc. And, and you're right, the book, if you just look at the book, it's basically guys who took notes from his, his class he did in, in Switzerland with the editions BIM guys, mm-hmm. Jean-Pierre Matez or some of those guys in Switzerland in the late 70s, I think it was 78, something like that. Mm-hmm. And they were just taking notes and then they ran it by Mr. Stamp and I guess he approved it. Mm-hmm. But he purposely didn't want any dialogue from my understanding in the book mm-hmm. because he felt like you have to almost get it, like you say, like from me or Ronnie or Hulkan or somebody who actually mm-hmm. was there and understands it to explain it. 
because he didn't want it to be misconstrued, mm -hmm. is my sense. And, and, and so he opted toward the opposite, which is no dialogue, basically. Minimal, minimal dialogue. Yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting because I think just my own fundamentals book, I have a lot of dialogue in it, but I tried to echo, in a sense, what Stamp did. And basically, you're creating a philosophical viewpoint. And then how you apply that philosophical viewpoint can go any any number of different directions. That you don't have a dogmatic approach. I mean, Stamp wasn't a one-size-fits-all guy at all. Mm -hmm. He was working with, he was really working with a lot of commercial guys first and foremost before, you know, Malcolm McNabb and Tom Stevens and those guys got involved with him. And it, and then the classical guys from you know, the Philharmonic and some of the studio guys mm -hmm. started coming to him a little bit more. And so he worked with a wide variety of players, but I heard other lessons with Mr. Stamp and the way he would explain a very specific thing to me was completely different than the way he'd explain it to somebody else, knowing their skill set, their physical sure. attributes and limitations and how mm -hmm. to be able to apply and get that same end goal result. And mm -hmm. so it was, Mr. Stamp was, his ingenuity and his problem solving skills were really probably the most amazing part of him to me mm -hmm. that watching him teach or being taught by him and having him try he used to say you know you got to go down a lot of blind alleys to get out on the street <laughs> and he would try every which way and every angle before he and he was doggedly determined to figure mm -hmm. it out always very calm but doggedly determined and wouldn't give up till he got there mm -hmm. till he got till he got there and got you there and he had all sorts of you know possibilities and, and equations. What, what am I trying to say? Yeah, you know, all sorts of solutions to everything. Yeah, yeah. That was just it was, it was always stunning. And and I, I'm only sorry I didn't record my lessons. So much mm. of it's here, and he's been gone for 35 years in December. So much of it is now this. How much of it is actually him, or how much of it is he remembered a, a portion of it, and it's grown like 18 mm -hmm. heads in my mind. How I've applied <laughs> it and. You know, there's all sorts of things, but that's, in a way, that's the spirit of what he wanted. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that his thing was an end-all, was his thing was a philosophical base and a starting point. And from there, how you apply it and where you took it could go any and all directions. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what, it, that to me is a great teacher. Mm -hmm. Is somebody who could really, you know, illuminate your attributes and figure out the best way to use those attributes and also figure out what you can do into, in a way for you to do that. Yeah, that's the age-old thing for all of us. We try to do with our students is creative problem solving and right. help get them through it, get them to the get them to the point where they can you know solve it themselves. You answered a little bit of the the question I was going to head towards is in your own teaching style now, mm -hmm. or maybe talk about that evolution. You think back when you back to when you first started teaching, and what it looks like now when you bring somebody into your studio. How has that evolved? What's that look like? There's a couple different sections of this I'm going to answer. First of all, you asked as far as how much my voice as a teacher is reflecting my experiences with Tony and Mark and Mr. Stamp. They're constant voices in my head. I hear them constantly. There, There's not a day that goes by that I don't think of multiple things each of the three of them told me that I apply, that I, I, I have applied, continue to apply, continue to teach, continue to say... In many ways, I, I am a conglomeration of all three of those guys and, and so much. And I, and I owe them so much. They were wonderfully supportive, wonderful, just 
personally as well as a trumpet teacher, but just personally. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was very fortunate to have them in my life. And to me, a lot of that positivity, I was talking about with Ryan, it's like they, they were so giving. And I feel like now I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where I can offer something that I want to, I want to pass that on and I want to pay it forward. These guys did so many nice things for me. I want to, I want to give that to, to people I come in contact with and students and anyone who I'm working with. And it's interesting though, for any of us, for both of us, or I have a feeling we're about the same age. Uh, 54. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm a couple of years older, but mm-hmm. close enough. I'm 58. It's just at this point, we've had a good 35 years in this maybe 30 years in the trenches. And of course, culturally, students are a little bit different. The way they absorb materials and their access to materials and the way they learn is, is a little bit different. The way I teach, the spirit of the way I teach and the, and the energy I bring to it is probably not that different. Hopefully, I'm a better, I'm a better player and a better, a better <laughs> yeah. teacher. But over the time, you learn a lot of things. And as you learn things in your own playing and how to work on your own playing, of course, that's going to come into your teaching. And just mm-hmm. as much, if not more, working with kids and coming up and finding the solutions for them seeps into your play. I'm sure for you, I can't tell you how many times I'm working with somebody and I'll come up with a solution for them and I'll think, God, why didn't I think of that before? Right. <laughs> you know, I need to use I need to use that. You know? Right. Right. My own advice. Yeah. You know, <laughs> And it's teaching for me is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to my play, quite honestly. The year before I got the job in Cleveland, when I was in Houston, I taught for a year at Rice. Mm-hmm. And that year at Rice, I think, was really one of the main reasons I won this position. Because the stuff I figured out in my playing, having to teach, all of a sudden, as a 25, 26-year-old guy who I had a pretty good sense of what I did, but I had to drill down many more layers and say, all right. How do I do this? Why do I do this? You know, what's the result I envision? And then articulate that, you know, and actually verbalize that to somebody mm-hmm. and put it into words. It only accentuates and galvanizes those things that you see working. And then also it illuminates things that maybe I, maybe I need to rethink this. And so that I'm thinking a little, a little more complete with that. Maybe I need to drill a little bit more into that. And mm-hmm. just working with kids and delving into every, you know, aspect of playing it just puts out, it just, all it does as a teacher, in many ways, you're putting up a mirror to yourself. You're yeah. trying to put up a mirror to your student so that they can understand what they're doing, so they can self-evaluate and analyze and be able to, be able to enact in their own um, creative problem solve. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, realistically, in a best case scenario, we're spending a handful of hours with a student a week. The other 25 they are with a trumpet in their hand, they're alone. Mm-hmm. Well, here we are in the middle of today's interview. Just a reminder that support for this podcast comes from Messina Covers, who has you covered, literally, for all of your custom case needs. The Eastman Music Company, providing excellence from the professional model to the beginner model. And of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. Now, back to the interview. Best case scenario, we're spending a handful of hours with a student a week, the other... 25 they are with a trumpet in their hand they're alone and i thought too i only have undergraduates and i'm thinking my responsibility in four years is not to teach them the entire repertoire my responsibility is to just like you're talking about is to teach them how to uh, recognize different things in their own playing and how to become creative in 
and how to solve those mm -hmm. or how to get better. And my job is to teach you how to teach yourself. Yeah. And of course, coaching along the way as far as style and that sort of thing goes. And once I realized that, teaching became a little bit easier because then there's not this pressure to have them learn mm -hmm. everything from the Haydn to the Tomasi. It's, some undergrads aren't ready for Tomasi. It, it, some aren't ready for the Haydn at certain points. One of the things I enjoy about teaching is now the access that we have to YouTube and Spotify and and Hokan doing mm -hmm. all the Charliers. And I'm learning more. And I, I tell my students, I say, look, I'm still learning. I might be teaching you, but if I told you that I know everything there is about trumpet, then I should be done as a teacher. So even, I think we have to be lifelong learners. We should always keep striving. And, and that's exactly what I hear you saying that you're doing is just constantly um, growing. No, I'm always pushing myself. To me, the people that I've always admired, whether it's athletes or people in business or musicians that I've been lucky enough to know and work with, Mm -hmm. And those that I admire most are those that are eternal students, <laughs> that are constantly seeking knowledge, that are constantly trying to evolve, that are constantly looking within themselves to try to make themselves better. And that's something I, I try to do on a daily basis. As a teacher, I only hope that students learn as much from me as I learn from the process of teaching <laughs> them. Because over the years, that's where I've learned the most, I would say, is working with students and working on my own things. It's like, you mentioned, you know, having to go through all the repertoire with the kids. It's, it's the whole, whole adage, do you want to teach a kid to fish or do you want to give him a fish? Yeah, right. Do you want to give him a hundred fish or do you want to teach him how to fish and he can catch a thousand? It's, mm -hmm. it's, my whole thing is I want to create a really, like for an undergraduate, I want to create a great solid base of just how to play the trumpet, fundamentals. But also that they start understanding, they start hearing that they have in their mind a goal orientation, an imagery, a sound concept. It's like, what do you want to sound like? And all of us, that's going to be as unique as our fingerprint. You know, mm -hmm. no two people sound absolutely identical. Some people sound more alike than others, but no player is identical. And that's the beauty of it. What I want to do is I want to cultivate and find what that person's voice is and help them mm -hmm. cultivate cultivate their voice. I don't want them to sound like me. I want them to sound like the best of them. Mm -hmm. And to me, that starts with you got to be able to get around the instrument fundamentally and just make a good sound. And then you got to have that concept is what do I want to sound like? And I don't know who it is for you, but for me, it's a combination. I'll probably, probably leave some people out. I'm sure I will. But to start with, it was a combination of, my mom used to play a lot of NBC Symphony recordings, so Harry Glantz, mm. Boston Symphony with Munso, Gatalan, Voisin, Chicago Symphony, Herseth, Maurice Andre, mm -hmm. Phil Smith, Gabor Tarkovi, Wynton Marcellus, Doc Severinsen, Arturo Sandoval, <laughs> Wayne Bergeron, Chris Martin, Morris Murphy, I, I could start naming all, Tom Stevens, of course, was a huge influence growing up. And you become this amalgamation of all these different influences. And, you know, Gould, of course, and Tony. And just you, you start picking up little bits and pieces and you congeal it together and stir it in the pot. And you come up with your, your signature sound. And to me, that's what I want to challenge a student to do is listen to a variety of things. And you'll pick up little things here. I mentioned I play in an orchestra. But yet, there's a lot of stuff that an Arturo Sandoval and a Wayne Bergeron and a Doc Severinsen and anybody in, in the commercial field is, there's, there's a huge amount I can learn from that. Just mm -hmm. because I don't play that particular style. 
Yeah. Huge amount, or Lou Soloff, or any number of guys. There's so much if you look for it. And then you bring in these things in these different colors and these different emotions. And then when you're playing, if you've got this idea that is not an amoeba, but it's like you, at the core, you've got an idea for your sound, but it can be flexible, it can be fluid, and you can react to different situations, different styles, and really express yourself. And that, to me, the best players, it's like they transcend the instrument. You don't realize they're playing the trumpet. They're just, it's their voice, and mm -hmm. they're just expressing something musically, and they happen to be using the trumpet or the horn or right. the violin as a vehicle. And to me, those are the musicians I gravitate to that really express them. You know, Marcus Printup's another guy. Oh, yeah. You know, any of the Lincoln Center guys. Sensational. I mean, there's so many guys out there, and you hear them. And you hear them express something, and it's man, I, I need to, man, I need to, I need to use that <laughs> over here in this way in this, right? You know, how do they do that? And I'll sit there and I'll play around, and a lot of times I'll play some stuff in my practice room, and if somebody was listening to me, they'd be like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> but it's, I'm experimenting. I'm finding like where that, where mm -hmm. that edge is, where that barrier is, and trying to figure out how to navigate, how to make a particular sound, and what do I need to do, and then how can I use that? And then try to, again, I'm always trying to widen my color palette. I'm trying to widen my dynamic palette, my, my expressive palette. Isn't it amazing the, the variety of voices we can have as a trumpet player? Yeah. And, and just to think about, for extremes, Chet Baker yeah. to Sergey, yeah. or Allison Balsam, or Tina Helseth, or... Thomas Gonch, who's, yeah. I think, just all those guys are phenomenal. And yeah, all those guys, absolutely. And and then you hear people play Brandenburg too, and they sound more like a woodwind instrument than they mm -hmm. do a trumpet player. Mm -hmm. And you think, what other instrument has that wide of a capability, that wide of a range? And, and there may be, I know everybody's got a range, but I just think the trumpet has this... Boy, we're lucky that we're on trumpet and we can do this. It's a lot like the human voice, I think. Everybody says that about their instrument, and every instrument has those qualities. But the trumpet, because we can play in so many different styles and genres, it's we really cover about the widest spectrum of any instrument you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that to me is the beauty of it. And I'm I'm always searching, I'm always looking, and I'm always interested yeah. to hear different players and I love guys who play Baroque trumpet. That's something that if I ever had time and I've always wanted to dive in, I've done a very cursory amount on it. Nothing I'd ever <laughs> do in public. Mm -hmm. I love like Baroque trumpet or key trumpet and <clears throat> do that kind of historical dive into that stuff. I've got a key trumpet. I've got a Baroque trumpet and I mess with it a little bit here and there. That's something I'd, I'd love to do a deeper dive because I, I, I want to inform my present day performance yep. maybe on a modern instrument but i want to inform it with the historical precedent of okay what did it sound like what was it like to navigate that piece then what did it sound like and try to bring those elements in with a baroque trumpet or a key trumpet i know you can't articulate on it the same way i can articulate on my boxy trumpet. right that's you know that's going to bark back <laughs> at me and it's, it's just it's going to be buckshot it and that's <laughs> that's it's good to understand that with the Baroque trumpet, it's more of a glide and touch than it is a strike. And so I listen to you know, Crispin Steel Perkins and Michael Laird and Mark Bennett yeah. and Nicholas Eklund. I like to listen to those guys' recordings and just see what can I do to bring that kind of feeling and that kind of style into my, my piccolo trumpet playing while using a modern instrument. So I've got mm -hmm. a hybrid of the best of both. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm grateful for valves because who would mm -hmm. want to walk that high wire of being that uh, Baroque trumpet it's player? It's kind of fun. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, kind of, I enjoy that kind of high wire business, but it, but at the same time, to do valves are a good thing. I, you yes. Know, I, you put that on my app, that valves are good. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know why I just thought of this. I was, I was talking to somebody the other night. And we were talking about just like mental aspects of things. I don't know why it just blurted out. And I just said, you know what? Fear is bad. <laughs> When you're playing trumpet and you're playing oh, right, 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 trumpet, fear is bad. And they just said, okay, good. That's on your tombstone. Yeah. There, <laughs> so you, there can put, you go. Valves are good. Fear is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, I'll, no, I'll, no, I'll, that's, I'll shut up now. No, that's great. So that is a great little segue to Michael Sachs as principal trumpet player. And I think 30, 32 years. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Since 88? Yeah. Yep. And it's funny, David said, David Belcher said yesterday, he would have gotten his 25th year watch this June, but of course, yeah, yeah. he missed out on that. Oh, and another thing, and I think you'd probably agree with this. I asked David, did you ever think you would enjoy teaching this much? And of course he responded, no, I never thought I would enjoy it. He loves it. And he goes, and if I had, and he did this, he goes, if I had to choose, right, over playing, he goes, I love symphonic playing still. He would choose to teach. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, that's no secret. He put that right out there in the interviews. But I think a lot of people feel that way. And obviously, your passion for teaching and learning comes through in the way you describe everything. Education, it, to me, it just goes hand in hand. It really completes the whole pie of being a performer and being an educator and, and, and serving others that way. You serve the music, but also passing that on, to me... It's, it, it's important, again, that these wonderful people were so supportive and helped me along. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm in this position, I, I want to give back and I want to continue that, that continue and pay that forward in the same way. And to me, there's nothing better than, than, than working with kids and seeing kids enjoying music, whether they become professionals or not, mm -hmm. in a sense, doesn't matter because I, I look at it like I'm teaching a kid to think. I'm teaching kid to reason. I'm teaching kid to communicate. I'm teaching them to work well with others and be a team player. I'm teaching them to assimilate information and put it to use. I'm teaching them to the, the viability and the value of proper practicing and ingraining things leading to a great performance mm -hmm. and working, working on things leading to the culmination where you, you produce this thing. And whether you're in business or you're in music, to me, it, it's one and the same. I mean, the philosophical mm -hmm. end goal is the same kind of a thing. And in many ways, there is a lot of overlap in that thought process. Mm -hmm. It's more to me, if I, if I teach them to think properly and approach things properly, then whatever they're going to do with it, they're going to find success. And that's the basis of a lot of it. And I do. I love teaching. I've, I've always loved teaching. I always enjoy This goes back when I was playing sports when I was younger and I'd work with little kids and teach them sports and things. I've always enjoyed that aspect of working with other people that way mm -hmm. and helping people out. And mm -hmm. it's, it's also, I think that, yeah, 32 years, I came to this in a different way than a lot of people. I, I didn't get a music degree in college. I got a history degree. Mm -hmm. My parents weren't musicians. It was something that I decided I wanted to do that was mine that, I enjoyed doing, there were a lot of great opportunities with the music in the schools where I grew up in Santa Monica, California, and one thing led to the other, and I had some great opportunities, and it happened. It kind of it, it led me that way, mm -hmm. and because of that, I guess 
it still feels very fresh to me. I know that sounds like an oxymoron. I've been doing this for 32 years. It's still very fresh for me. I've, it, it, I appreciate it I, because none of this was handed to me. I, there are other guys out there that are probably much more talented than I'll ever be. But I work my ass off. And I still do. Mm -hmm. I'm very diligent and very deliberate with how I go about doing things. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have lasted this long if you weren't. I mean, over time, I found like how I need to navigate, what I need to do to be physically and mentally in a place. But also doing what I do, it plays out some of the athlete acumen. I would have loved to play baseball. Some, I would have loved to play professional sports in some manner, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, I used to love to practice kicking field goals. I would have loved to have been a kicker. Mm -hmm. I would have loved that whole thing of just that singular task. It just So in many ways, I get to play that out with what I get to do in the orchestra preparation and in, in the moment, in the orchestra and evaluating and interacting and, and, and being fluid and flexible and reacting off of everything and fitting in with everything and knowing when to be in the mix and coming more on the surface. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess it's always fresh also because every time I play a piece, it doesn't matter how many times I play it. I've always made sure that I do this. I, I still do the same sort of, practice and same sort of just going through it, sitting with the score. Mm -hmm. Some of the stuff I don't need to listen. I can just look at the score now, but sometimes I'll still listen to it just to reorient myself or I've got notes in my part, the different things I need to be thinking of at different moments, different solutions for certain technical aspects or make sure that my little markings about where I want to blow toward in the phrase and things I want to emphasize a little more than others, just some harmonic things. And you know, I just try to keep it so that being an internal student that when I'm in the orchestra, if I'm aware and I stay aware of things and looking for it, every single time I'll play a piece, it doesn't matter how many times, I'll hear something new that I wasn't aware of from before mm -hmm. that will help me perform better. Mm -hmm. Some sort of relationship to you know, a viola passage that happens 20 bars before me or something the violin's doing the movement before me or something mm -hmm. the oboe does or, oh, I didn't realize that I'm playing with the second flute there mm -hmm. or the third the, the bass clarinets playing it an octave with me mm -hmm. some, some sort of relationship that'll help me to perform better to understand better how to fit and make this reflect the composer's wishes and to me that's the fun of it the fun of it is like the exploration and the deep dive and the finding new information the exploration and then in the orchestra finding that new material and finding that new kernel of something that's going to make it better. Or really just every single time I play a piece, I want to play better than the last time I played. Mm. I want to keep evolving. I don't want to just do one of these things and go like this and then just hang for a while. I never want to hang. Mm -hmm. I want, always want to keep the graph going like this. And hopefully I step aside before I go like, I'm, yeah. smart, enough, I'm smart enough to be Barry Sanders or Jim Brown rather than Michael Jordan playing for the Wizards. It's just, it's, right. you leave, leave. Even Jim Thompson said before he, and when he left Atlanta, mm -hmm. uh, somebody asked him, he, of course, he still plays great. Oh, yeah. But why are you leaving? You're leaving five years too early. He goes, I'd rather leave five years too early than five years too late. And then, now, oh, five seconds too late. Yeah. <laughs> or one literally, note, right? Yeah, literally, exactly. literally. Literally. Yeah. yeah, I feel you know, the same way. I'd rather leave a, a couple years early than a couple seconds late. I just, yeah. I never want to be a burden. I never want to be a liability. I always want to be able to take care of business at the highest level possible and, and mm -hmm. be an asset. And it's just, I, 
I know it's, it, it's it, this may sound cliche or corny, but I, I really truly mean this, that playing the trumpet in the orchestra for me, really just playing the trumpet in general, but especially playing the trumpet in the orchestra is fun for me. <laughs> I have a, if all I had to do was play the trumpet in the orchestra and not any of the other nonsense surrounding that or other things, mm-hmm. I, I would have very little stress. Playing the trumpet, playing my part, playing in the orchestra is a very low stress job for me. That I don't get stressed doing that. I don't care what it is. The stress comes from dealing with ancillary BS and other and other things that are unnecessary, don't belong in there. But right. it, it's part of what you got to deal with, and right. you've got to navigate. And it's, just, it's part of life, and, yeah. and that's okay. And but. But there's nothing that feels better when you're, you're playing a Mahler symphony, you're playing like Mahler 5, and you get to the chorales at the end of the fifth movement, and you're riding on top of the brass section. The brass section is just this wall of tone that is just this heroic, beautiful sound riding up, taking it home. It's, there's nothing better. And isn't that ironic? Because so many people are fixated on the opening solo. But how many of those people could lead that brass section at the end of any of the Mahler symphonies, right? All the big corrals. Oh yeah. You know, in three mean, in three, it's you start out so softly and then it's got that big crescendo all the way to the end. I mean it's just it's there's so many moments that I'm playing and, and other moments when I'm not that are just it, it just transcends the moment. I mean when when you're playing Mahler five and you get to the fourth movement and you're tacit. And then you could just sit there and just get enveloped in this incredible love letter that he wrote to his wife, that it just transports you to, to, to a whole nother place. And you could just have a little out of body experience for about nine minutes before you got to <laughs> lock in and hop back in. But you could just, right. just have that respite in there and just be surrounded by that and be in the midst of it. That to me is when it comes time that I do step away, that's the one thing I'm going to miss is that sound and that energy being in the middle of it. <laughs> is really, it's really a sensation that is, is extraordinary that I, I've never taken for granted. Mm-hmm. That I've been lucky enough to be in the situation I'm in, to be surrounded by really incredible players from my section to everybody around me. Yeah. You know, the section I've got here, I've got, you know, three other guys who are just sensational players and terrific guys. I mean, who, I, I who's in the section right now? Uh, Jack said he's the, the second trumpet player. Lyle Stillman's the assistant principal, third, and Mike Miller's the um, fourth utility. And uh, <laughs> the section's been intact now. Oh, gosh, we've been in the section now for 11 years. Wow. Which is great. And, yeah. you know, have that kind of continuity and stability. And to get to roll with guys who, not only do I, I, I like them personally, but just musically, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I couldn't ask for more. John Rommel, I think, has come up and mm-hmm. worked with you a little bit. Yeah, quite and a bit. I get to sit next to John in some recording studios here in Indy. Yeah. And it's not fair, right? He sounds so good yeah. all the time. And But I think it's really funny. He's playing first trumpet on these Hal Leonard marching band mm-hmm. recordings. And here's like this monster player. And Tom Hooten, when he was here in Indy for uh-huh. a little bit, was part of those sessions too. But yeah, I know John likes to come up. In fact, didn't he go on tour? Was it a Mahler 7 or something? Uh, Mahler 6, yeah. Mahler 6. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's gone on tour a bunch of Mahler 2 he's been with us, Mahler 6. He's, John, we've been lucky to get John over here a number of times. John is one of my favorite guys in this business. Mm-hmm. He's a nicer guy, a smarter guy, and a better player you're not going to find. Mm-hmm. Just humble, kind, easygoing, but 
with one of the great senses of humor of all time, and he's just, he'll be real quiet, and all of a sudden just, he'll slip in his zinger. <laughs> and he'll just, he'll just howl. Yeah. You know, it just, it's, it just, he's so great to have along. It just bringing a third degree black belt like that in more parts. It's, just, it's fun. It's always fun to have him along and always inspiring mm-hmm. to be with him. And mm-hmm. it's, it, he definitely adds a lot to the section. I think, what was the last thing he was here for? Oh, gosh. I'm not, anyhow, yeah. Yeah, but he comes at least a handful of times a year, which we're yeah. lucky he's this close. Yeah. But 11 years with the current section, that's a yeah. nice run. And hopefully that continues. Yeah, well, hopefully I've got a little more gas in the tank. I'm hoping to go. I'm not going to be playing into my 70s and limping along for sure. But yeah, yeah, I got I got a few more, few more miles on me. I think so. I'm 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 hoping to you know roll with these guys for a while. And it's a good situation here. It's very stable in that way. That's I think lent itself to. There's a terrific Alpine Symphony right now that's up on a thing called the TCO Classic, the Cleveland Orchestra Classic. Mm -hmm that they posted from 2015 if anybody wants to go check it out mm-hmm. it's online if you go look up tcoclassics.com i think it's on or just go to the cleveland orchestra website look for tco classics and this alpine symphony is there from 2015. Mm-hmm. so yeah i imagine you've played all the typical repertoire all the beethovens all the sibelius mm-hmm. all the brahms and probably multiple times mm-hmm. are there pieces yet to have crossed your music stand? Are there pieces that you're like, I've got to play this? I don't know if it's, I've got to play it because you, if it hasn't crossed my stand by now. There's probably a reason, hmm. but, but I, I, I bust the chops of my music director, Franz, every now and then. We have a very good relationship. I've known him for a long time, mm-hmm. 27 years, but I keep telling him, I was like, when are we going to play Brichter zero and double zero? <laughs> I can, so I can finish that off. Or when are we going to play Tchaikovsky three? Mm-hmm. Or actually, Strauss Macbeth is on for next season. That's one I've never played. Stra- mm-hmm. Strauss mm-hmm. poem I've ever played. Cacciatorian Symphony Number no. Three, which is for fifteen trumpets, orchestra, and organ. It's a twenty-five minute piece that Stokowski recorded. I think Slotkin has done it. Mayhem, but fifteen trumpets. I just want to hear it once. <laughs> just maybe just rehearse it and then throw it back in the pile. <laughs> There's some stuff like I haven't played Shostakovich twelve or thirteen. If Sasako was two or three, those, those more Soviet pieces I haven't done. I haven't done Prokofiev four is the only one I haven't done. I've actually, Prokofiev two we just did. Mm-hmm, and uh, it's a tapeworm. I wouldn't, I'm glad I played it. I wouldn't want to see it again. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I played it to say I played it. I'll just put it in that pot. Got it. <laughs> but there are some pieces like that, but very few. Anything that's worth playing pretty much at this point, I pretty much play. It, mm-hmm. it, it, I don't think... Maybe there's some stuff. I'm, I'm just I'm trying to think if there's anything. That, there's some opera I'd love to play that mm. I haven't played yet. But even then, I've done a lot. I've done a lot of the big stress. I played Electra and Salome and Rosenkavalier and Daphne. And I've done Wozzeck. I haven't done Lulu. We were supposed to do Lulu a couple mm. months ago, and I missed out on that. But I'm sure that'll come back. I've done all of the ring except for God of Dameron, but I played a lot of it, just excerpts. Mm. Sure. I've done a lot of the Puccini, a lot of the Verdi. So, I mean, I have played a lot of opera mm-hmm. and Carmen and other things. There's some things I wouldn't mind. I would love to play Frau in a Shot, the Strauss opera. Mm-hmm. That's one I would love to play. Bella is another Strauss I'd like to play. It's got up, 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 I think it's the beginning of the third act. Mm-hmm. Great trumpet part. But studying with Gould, I got exposed to all that stuff. Oh, sure. And sure. He would talk about that. I asked him about it. And actually, when I left New York, 
he did something for me with the librarian at the Met that for a pretty cursory amount, he had some really beautiful parts bound for me of Met opera parts from like 25 different operas. Mm-hmm. Just so I had the, I wanted the mm-hmm. principal trumpet parts. So a lot of times when those operas have come up, I've gone to my Met part and that's informed a lot of what I ended up doing besides just listening to recordings and watching, watching the score go by. But we do at least one opera a year here. Semi-staged? I usually semi-staged, sometimes mm-hmm. fully staged. We did the, the Mozart de Ponte operas. It was it Cosi Fantuti, Don Giovanni, and uh, Major Figaro? Mm-hmm. We did those. We did those three staged over three years. That was now, see, of- that's you say that, and Indianapolis did a Mozart opera this past season, but uh, they started to incorporate natural trumpets. Yep. Yeah, and, Conrad told me about this. Yeah. Oh, and what a great guy, right? Oh, Conrad. Yeah. Conrad is a superstar, man. Yeah. For, for those who don't know Conrad Jones, a principal in Indianapolis Symphony, you'll soon, soon get to know him you know, very soon because he is, he's a superstar. And he yeah. can play everything from a bebop combo to a Mahler symphony. I mean, he's, and, he, and he can play broke trumpet. He can really navigate. Yeah. He can get yeah. around it. It's interesting because I've talked a lot with, Con, with Conrad about this. And I have two different mindsets. I completely understand why you would maybe want to travel down that path. And I think it's a really interesting path to go down. Mm-hmm. But if you go down that path and you got to have natural horns, calfskin, timps, and mm-hmm. gut string, string players, mm-hmm. you want to go the full 90 on it and you got to do that. And, or at least back in the brass area and whether or not that is, that's a, a skill set that trumpet players are going to need to have going forward I would say that it's a good thing, both at Northwestern and at CIM, this is something we're discussing implementing mm-hmm. much more. CIM, already, we already have access to it, but I want to implement it on a more regular kind of actual codified basis mm-hmm. that everybody gets at least one year on natural trumpet. Same thing at Northwestern, access to natural trumpet playing, and just so you have a, at least a cursory skill to navigate it, that you've got another skill set that you can go out into the workplace. Mm-hmm. I had one student from CIM who's done a lot of Baroque trumpet work now because he learned that skill set and gravitated and was really good at it. It just naturally mm-hmm. fit for him. Mm-hmm. And he just, he was a duck in water and he's taken off with it. He plays a lot of natural trumpet. That's how he's mm-hmm. made a lot of his living. And with Conrad, I know he's done some stuff too, but to me, it just, you don't want to weigh that on somebody who doesn't have that skill set. And needs to all of a sudden learn it. That's a big learning curve, and it's a lot to ask. It's, I, I don't know. I can see the next generations coming up after us, the guys who are coming up now in the next 20 years. That could potentially be a skill set. I don't think it's going to be quite like rotary trumpets were 40 years ago versus mm-hmm. now. How Baroque trumpets will be now versus 40 years from now. I right. may be wrong. Rotary trumpets, something over the last 40 years, have been incorporated much more liberally than they were before. A lot of that has to do with the quality of the instruments. Yeah, thank goodness. In particular, mm-hmm. along with Lechner's and Kuhn's and, 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 and Times and all sorts of other things, the level of instrument making has been vastly improved in my time in, in this orchestra. Mm-hmm. When I first got here, we had a set of old monkas that were just heinous. The guys hated using them. They only <laughs> used, before I got here, they only used them on Schumann and Bruckner symphonies. That was it. Mm-hmm. And reluctantly, but I got my monk and I played two notes on it. And I was like, I'm not going to use this in public. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <clears throat> so I went to, to Chicago. And at that, at that time, Tom Crown was mm-hmm. a dealer for Gunter. 
and the Gaunters were what, what I had played in Houston, which I actually liked. Mm-hmm. So I bought a Gaunter, and that's what I used until we got a new set of Monkas when they redesigned them in the 90s. New York Philharmonic got a set, we got a set, a few other guys got sets. And then recently we got a set of Imons, which was mm-hmm. incrementally better than went from right. the bad Monkas to really great Monkas to great Vimons. And it's like that mm-hmm. much of a quantum leap forward. And the sound quality, there is a distinct difference when you use a you know, Bresselmeyer mouthpiece or JK mouthpiece or something like that, or a German-style mouthpiece in a German trumpet on that classical repertoire on the Beethoven, mm-hmm. Schumann, Schubert, Mendelssohn, Haydn, Mozart, all that stuff, Bruckner. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, so there's a definite different sound quality, different interactive quality between the, the section and the orchestra that creates a different different sound palette that's for me is more appropriate for the piece mm-hmm. a different blend within the brass section different integration within the orchestra so that when you use your piston trumpet versus the rotor trumpet there's a distinct difference and with the broke trumpet i can maybe see it you know as guys become more adept with it maybe i could see it starting to come in mm-hmm. and maybe more guys because it just becomes a part of the curriculum in places and then that just becomes mm-hmm. another tool in, in, in the set <laughs> it's possible yeah that brings me back to something two years ago one of the regional orchestras i play with did an all john williams concert and of course when you see that on the up next season as a trumpet player yeah this is going to be great oh crap <laughs> you know it's because in the regional orchestra, it's usually a double on Friday, a Saturday morning dress, and a Saturday night concert. So you've got to blow through the program four times in two days. Mm-hmm. So, and, and truly, it was all John Williams. But I thought, you know what? Not everything is a B-flat part. Not everything is a C part. And so I said to the section, we're going to play C when he's marked C, and we're going to play B-flat when he marks B-flat, just because thinking there has to be a reason he chose to use one of those, unless the orchestrator was just being arbitrary in in that. But I thought we're going to do it, and I thought things lined up nicely. When you're on B flat, you line up with the the trombones and the tuba beautifully. When you're on C, there's a little bit more unity, I feel like, with the horns. I don't know if, have you ever done anything like that, or do you see any logic in that? I definitely see the logic in it. it. It's interesting because as you're saying that, I'm going through the parts of my mind, and I wonder if the parts in B-flat are parts that were written with Morse Murphy and the LSO guys in mind. Because mm, they would have that all played B-flats. They would have been playing B-flats. I mean, it could be like a lot of times with different you know, composers that were writing in a key because it was a particular key that, that resonated a particular way for that moment in that piece. Or it put them in a particular key for us that instead of a lot of sharps or flats it was a little, a little more simplified mm-hmm. as far as mm-hmm. the writing you know i don't know i don't know it's it's an interesting thought for us we're one of the few orchestras that actually still the section predominantly uses b-flat trumpets mm-hmm. for the second third fourth players i go mm-hmm. back and forth. there are a number of pieces i use b-flat trumpet as well so there's a number of pieces that we play all b-flat trumpet sections on regular symphonic repertoire a lot of repertoire I'll play C, the rest of the section play B flat. The whole idea is that the B flat trumpet's a little wider bass, a little beefier sound, it's got a little more bulk and mm-hmm. a little more, more glow to it, and that the C trumpet sound fits within that so that 
certain repertoire, if we all played C trumpets in our hall, which is very resonant, there could be too many highs in the sound and we'd separate from the rest of the brass section too much. So mm -hmm. with the B flats, with the C sitting on top, it just gives it more connectivity through the entire brass section so that everything mm -hmm. just becomes that kind of relationship. With something like the John Williams, we would probably go back and forth between me playing C, the rest of the section playing B flat. It just depends how things lay and what kind of sonority, because a lot of times John writes the third trumpet part in unison with the horns. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times that's a great part to be playing B flat on, so you're playing with the horn players. Oh, yeah. And it just, it just, it's just another color horn. So it, a lot of it depends on, on the relationships and, and, and how things are, are fitting within the fabric of the, of the piece mm -hmm. and how John wrote it. But, I mean, look, anytime you play an all-John Williams program, you, you better eat your Wheaties. It, it's, it's, you're going to be hauling a lot of mail, everyone. Mm -hmm. Because you look at it, it's funny, when you do that or when you play the film, you play the whole Star Wars films, which have mm -hmm. done a lot of them. Those were not meant to be played in concert. Those right? were <laughs> scene by scene. It's another thing when you're going, boom, some of the stuff like, was the end of E.T., like the last 25 minutes of E.T., you're just playing. You're just going. I mean, it's nonstop. And... <laughs> Was it Return of the Jedi? I think there's some stuff like that. There's, yeah. there's some stuff where it's just, you're going, man. And and it's a challenge. And I kind of like that. It, it, it's fun to put on my Morris Murphy hat and then go after it that way. I try to channel my inner Morris Murphy. Yeah. But it's interesting. Whenever we do Star Wars, I will say this because I'm very much a historian. And mm -hmm. paying those guys respect is a, a big part of uh, something that's very important to me. Every time we do Star Wars... I will play at least one thing on my B flat trumpet, mm. for more, and, 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 and out of respect for Morris Murphy, in honor of him. Mm -hmm. And usually, I try to do, I try to use it, do it on a solo passage. Oh yeah, yeah. I try to play something on something on B flat in honor of Morris Murphy. Oh, that's very nice. But there's another person I wish I could have met. They're gone, and then the other Derek Watkins. I never met Mr. Watkins. I met Mr. Murphy only twice. Mm -hmm. And it was very brief in passing. The LSO and my orchestra were staying at the same hotel in Tokyo. My first trip to Tokyo, no, my second trip to Tokyo in the mid nineties. And I, you know, we had just gotten there. So everybody was just torched, <laughs> but I got word that Morris Murphy and a bunch of the brass guys were up in the, the sky bar. <laughs> so went up there and just poked my head in. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, I sat with him, I sat with him for a couple hours. And he, yeah, these guys were very nice guys. These guys yeah. were super nice. And yeah. then one other time in, in, in London, I forget where it was. I was someplace, and their paths crossed, and I, I just said mm -hmm. a quick hello. And yeah, yeah. It, was, it was very nice to me. I never met Derek Watkins, Mister Mister Racy. I met once, long, long when I was a student in, mm -hmm. in studying with Tony. Mm -hmm. And around that time, I also met Manny Klein. And this is a funny story. Yep. And so I'm 19 and, and Ed Tarr was in LA to do some stuff and Tony hosted a party. So all these guys were there, Malcolm and, mm -hmm. and, and Manny Klein and all these guys, who's who of trumpets in LA showed up, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everybody. And I'm 19, I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground. And I'm in the kitchen and I'm talking with this dude who was a freaking riot, this older dude. And he's asking me about stuff, and I'm talking, and, you know, this is the older Jewish guy, I'm Jewish, you know, and talking, you know. And Tony is behind him, and I see Tony going, just hang on a sec. And I'm like, mm -hmm. give me one second, I'll be right back. 
and he's like, you're talking to you, right? I'm like, yeah, this older dude, Manny, is like he's super nice, man. We've been talking for the last hour. He's like, that's Manny Klein. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like mind blown. Right. And I think Manny, Manny was digging it. That like, I had, I had no, no idea who he was. I, didn't know what he was I realized like, this is Manny Klein. It's not just some old yiddling Manny trumpet player. You know, but he was hysterical. Really funny. We all stand, man. Mm-hmm. If not for them, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing the way we do it. If one thing I've learned is that doing what I do for as long as I've done it, man, anybody, anybody who straps it on, man, I have mad, mad props and, and respect for that. And yeah. you'll, you'll never hear me say anything. Look, we're not all going to agree. And that's the beauty of it. And that's mm-hmm. the good thing about this is mm-hmm. that there are different viewpoints and that's where you learn, man. And that's where you grow and you expand your thought process and, and yeah. perspective is it, it's better. We're not all cookie cutters. Right. Yeah. You know? And that's that to me. Yeah. No, I don't, you never have to worry about me. Man. Yeah. It's, I, I haven't had to worry about anybody that actually hasn't happened yet. So it's, well, it's been also, great. You know, again, it's in a sense, it reflects a lot of what we started out from the beginning is there is this, fraternal sense of camaraderie in the trumpet world that mm-hmm. you know, there's mutual respect, man. And there's like everywhere, there's a couple people who are a couple bad actors that eventually find themselves on an island on, unto themselves, right. which was going to happen. But there's so many great guys and such so many great hangs and, and, and so many great stories and fun that yeah. to me, that's what it's all about. Man. It's just having a great time. We happen to go into a piece of metal. Right. <laughs> Perfect. Then, until the next time, Michael, thank you so much for everything. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Hope that's what, hope this is what you were looking for. Oh, uh, better than I could ever Maybe some food for thought. And, yeah. Yeah. Look forward to continuing with you soon, man. All right. Take care. Stay healthy. Enjoy. All right. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that's where today's interview ends. I excerpted part of this interview for my Patreon patrons. There's a really terrific story on the John Williams Concerto and the genesis of that, and the relationship between Michael Sachs and John Williams. That portion of the interview is available only for my Patreon patrons. So if you're interested in hearing that, you can find out more by subscribing at patreon.com slash studiohfl. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Michael Sachs. I interviewed him just a couple of weeks after this first interview, and I've got another full interview that I'm going to be releasing later on. Uh, probably after episode 100, somewhere in the early 100. So there's going to be a little bit before we hear from him again. Thank you so much for listening today. I appreciate your time. And a reminder, if you would go to Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a comment, I would greatly appreciate that. And be sure to come back for next week's interview with Christopher Bill, a phenomenal, young, talented, super savvy, super smart musician. If you haven't seen his work on YouTube, uh, before you come and listen to this uh, interview next week, I would recommend you check that out. Thanks again for listening. Here's Aaron Rom.